Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. And one of the categories, first of all, it's a false binary, right? Engineered versus nature-based, but I get your point. Nonetheless, one of those things, hey, like has a lot more front-page Guardian, front-page um, Bloomberg Businessweek articles written about it. So are you going to stick your neck out for that? Some people have the courage to say no, but like corporations are not famous for their courage. That's why I am enthusiastic to be running a measurement company because I really deeply believe that we're part of the building blocks of a higher credibility sector. I want that to be earned, right? Like I don't want that to be a product of like just better marketing, but nonetheless, I'm proud to be working on a thing that'll really matter. I don't begrudge corporations who are discreet about their enthusiasm for nature-based solutions because they do face a lot of reputational risk. That's just the problem I want to solve. Chris, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Likewise. Let us dive right in. If you were to describe what you and Yardstick do in 60 to 90 seconds for folks listening in, how would you set that up? Well, apologies in advance to the actual soil scientists of the world, as always. I am not one of them. (laughs) But with 60 or 90 seconds, I would say that right now, it is really hard for us to describe the climate impact of agriculture, which, of course, engage deeply with soils. Yardstick is a soil carbon measurement technology. So we're a diagnostic technology to understand, hey, are these farming practices like good or bad for the climate? Are these ranching practices? What's going on with the soils of forests? Anywhere in the world, there are soils. There is soil carbon. Right now, it is very hard for us to measure soil carbon. That's what we do. Do it better than anything else. And we do it so that we can better understand the challenges of soil systems today and the opportunities. Soil stores massive amounts of atmospheric CO2 can be used to do so additionally in the future, but only if we really understand uh, what to measure and how. And now to to back up a little bit from this, I'd be curious to hear from your perspective as the founder and CEO, when did you first kind of realize that this was a major challenge that you wanted to tackle and build a company to kind of better address some of these challenges? This being the challenge of climate change a while ago, my first startup experience was actually my first like normal job out of college. I was part of a team working on a solar technology at MIT like 2009 era. This being soil carbon specifically was much more recently, summer 2020, to be precise. I had sold my last company early 2020, wanted to do it again, it being science commercialization, which is my jam. And so I was pawing around MCJ, my climate journey Slack group, which was blowing up at the time, pretty literally cold DMing people who looked like they could be a scientist with a thing to commercialize. (laughs) And you kiss a bunch of frogs. And I found a prince, namely my current co-founder and hardware co-founder, a guy named Kevin Meissner, who is the man. He had already built a relationship with the actual soil scientists, <laughs> which is namely Christine Morgan, a woman who's long been a leader in this domain of soil carbon measurement. So he and I got together summer 2020 through MCJ Slack, sort of co-founder dated through the fall, and then formed the company January 21. Great backstory. Yeah, goes to show that sometimes the cold DM really is the way it to, does. to change the world. Yeah, just spray <laughs> and pray, baby. Right, that's funny. And before we dive a little more deeply into the company, the technology, it's occurring to me that for folks listening in, 
you know, even just that setup of the fact that it's really difficult to, for example, measure carbon in soil. That's probably not something that everyone's necessarily thought about. Like, let's talk a little bit more about why historically that's been so difficult and maybe kind of what the evolution of technology has been over the past 10 years that's gotten us to a place where we're a bit more confident that we can do that well. Yeah, you bet. So the most fundamental reason why I believe until now it has been so difficult to measure is that there's never been a clear economic incentive to measure it well. Mm. To overgeneralize, like when people can make money doing a thing, it tends to advance. And <laughs> soil carbon measurement has long been an interest of soil scientist researchers. And there's some mm -hmm. sort of minor scenarios in which there is a, an economic premise. But generally speaking, it's really the advent of the visibility of soil as a climate solution, especially, frankly, over the last five years that have highlighted the sort of woeful inadequacy of existing soil carbon measurement technologies. Got it. And that's basically because like when you're a postdoc, it's okay to have some crummy solutions because you're underpaid and you got a lot of time. <laughs> so I think it's fair to argue that it's been an acceptable research tool for some time. We understand soil carbon systems in pretty amazing ways, exclusively due to the measurement technologies we've had to date. But all along, forward-thinking folks, again, namely this woman, Christine Morgan, have been like, huh, if we believe that soil carbon is deeply valuable, by definition, we should have better tools to characterize it. So the most right. acute recent development that made that gap visible and therefore made Yardstick compelling as a company is not a single company, but the story of a single company is instructive. It's Indigo. Indigo, for folks in the soil world, have made a big splash telling the story of the potential of soils as a climate solution. Certainly not just carbon removal, but soil CDR has been a big part of that story. It's inspiring. Right. They've had a ton of money. That's great. It has increased the visibility of that as an opportunity. And therefore, it's also revealed the enabling pieces which are lacking. So last few years, there's been a lot more commercial attention on, hey, if Indigo is going to make a lot of money, what are the other technologies that have to mature in order to make that possible? And measurement of soils has been a central bottleneck of a lot of the opportunity in that world. Hence why Christine Morgan's time has come. You know, I, I think it's, <laughs> it's not unfair to say that at least compared to the normal world of markets, like she sort of toiled in obscurity for a long time. And within the soil science right. community, everybody was like, hell yeah, this is great. This is important. <laughs> but, you know, TechCrunch <laughs> didn't write an article about her work because it's a totally different world. And that's really the transition that has now happened is greater visibility and enthusiasm for climate as a solution, greater visibility and enthusiasm for soils as a piece of that portfolio of approaches. And now we are so glad that Christine and many of her collaborators did that work for literally 15 years in order for Yardstick to build on top of it. A lot of interesting stuff in there. For one, I'm always a little humbled to reflect on the fact that even the kind of group of folks that are interested in climate solutions and technologies broadly is not that massive a set of people. No. And then if you went winnow down <laughs> into something like soil carbon, soil science, it gets even smaller. But you know, that's part of what we're here to do today is communicate to people why it's important and what the opportunity is. And in that vein, I'm interested, you know, for the folks listening in that might not necessarily have perspective on what the really grand opportunity is here. Soils are such an integral part of society for all kinds of different reasons. You know, obviously there's the agricultural output question, but what are kind of some of the headline statistics around the carbon opportunity 
if we start to globally manage soils in a more responsible way? Are those things that you know you've thought about as a company offhand? What are some of the kind of the, the headline numbers that people can get excited about? Yep, in terms of carbon sequestration. Yeah, so let's actually talk about that in two ways. Right. Way number one is not carbon sequestration. There is a real risk in climate in general and including in soil to have so-called carbon tunnel vision. Totally. And if that's not a piece of vocab that that resonates with you, dear listener, like please please google it. Humans are famous for causing one problem <laughs> with the solution to another. And that's what we do. And in some ways it's probably unavoidable, right? Like who can possibly predict the future? But nonetheless, I think it's really important to acknowledge that especially within soils, there is a real risk of over-rotating on the carbon story and forgetting, right. as you point out, that like in the meantime, soils have already been doing an incredibly important thing, you know, like feeding the entire world, and we need that <laughs> to continue. So two ways to think about it. Way number one is let's call it like non-carbon stuff. The central mm-hmm. tension there is that we have a growing population, and that population is acquiring middle-class tastes, namely beef. <laughs> And beef requires a ton of land. And where does that land come from? Right now, it largely comes from something that used to be the rainforest in Brazil, for example. So there is no climate story in soil that doesn't acknowledge the calories per person per acre story in parallel. And so-called climate solutions in soil, which rightly address a CO2e crisis, but don't acknowledge these broader questions of land use and a special agricultural food productivity, I think are, are pretty much dead in the water. But let's put that aside as bucket one. Bucket two, carbon. Two different ways to think about it. One is how much have we lost? And the other right. is, you know, okay, how much more could we get? How much have we lost is hard to answer because we were not observing soils in depth 150 years ago, call it, when a lot of industrial agriculture took off. But Soils Revealed uh, is a great resource. I think it's soilsrevealed.org. You can Google it. And TLDR, 150 gigatons is perhaps one Mm. estimate on how much we've lost, which is a lot. That was carbon that was previously being stored in soils that for all kinds of different reasons has since been released into the atmosphere, yeah. Yeah, you know, enter the classic bathtub analogy. The tap is soil's role of sequestering atmospheric CO2 significantly by way of photosynthesis, right? Because plants literally consume CO2 as part of photosynthesis and some portion of that C ends up in other compounds in soil by way of roots and other mechanisms. And the practices that we've changed over the last 150 years have opened the the drain more than it was previously or more than we want it to be. And so the net has been a loss. To be clear, even without indigo doing fancy things or yardstick measuring anything, soils still consume an enormous amount of atmospheric CO2 every year. So it's not simply about the upside of increasing that, But it's also about preserving what is already happening. Because by definition, if we've lost 150-ish gigatons, that's probably continuing today. It's really hard to generalize in soils. You know, Christine talks endlessly about like place being inseparable from soils. Um, So it's really hard to talk about like typically or averages, but certainly directionally, we continue to lose carbon in soil stocks. We want to at the very least preserve the stocks we have. And even better, wouldn't it be great if we could turn that around? That's the other angle. So call it 150 gigatons lost. The other angle is how much more could we get? Unsurprisingly, the ranges of this are are wide. But by now, (laughs) there's about 20 years of literature of folks trying to estimate the global potential of soils. And they all sort of net out in this like three to five, three to six gigaton per year range. Again, if you're listening and you want to argue with that number, I welcome it. 
right? Like there's a lot of things that are either unconsidered or considered poorly in those estimates. One key barrier is economics, right? Like who provides an economic incentive to change practices to acknowledge that? But from an ecological perspective or a holding capacity perspective, what matters to me as a founder, and I think my team as a group of people committed to this, is that this is inarguably gigaton scale solution, especially because remember, the climate potential of soils isn't limited to let's increase soil CDR, but soils also are a source of emissions significantly by way of synthetic fertilizers and whatnot. So when we talk about, for example, adopting classic regenerative practices, it's okay to get excited about the CDR opportunity of soils, but probably in the immediate term, we should probably get more excited about the emissions reduction opportunity of use less fertilizer, (laughs) burn less diesel because you're driving, you know, tillage equipment less. And I think especially within the Twitter climate bubble, which you may or may not think is helpful. (laughs) I think there's rightfully a lot of criticism of CDR potentially, you know, stealing the resources or the attention from the number one priority, which should be mitigation. And what I love about soils is that even though the CDR part of the story is really visible and inspiring, when you actually get down to the ground level of people doing the work, invariably the bulk of the energy is in mitigation anyway. And it's all soil. Yeah. Again, lots of good stuff in there for me to respond to. First of all, always super important to step outside of the carbon myopia. I think you said carbon tunnel vision. I definitely think that myself included, it's easy to get to try to boil everything in climate down to like what are the headline carbon numbers. But yeah, that's obviously not. (laughs) That's just scratching the surface of all the different challenges and opportunities at hand. Yeah, I think in the US, for instance, I was reading some Wendell Berry recently, and you know he referred to that we've lost something like 50% of topsoil in the U.S. or something staggering like that. Yeah. So challenges are certainly beyond carbon. Which incidentally, in America, is important because we have a culturally, shall we say, complex relationship with climate change. So that's another right. area in which soil is exciting for me because in some ways it can kind of do like cultural political judo of talking right. about soil health or erosion. Uh, rather than soil carbon. right? The soil scientist I keep mentioning, Christine, her organization is called the Soil Health Institute and not the Soil Carbon Institute for a reason. Mm-hmm. And many soil scientists, I think, would very vociferously argue that soil health really should be the goal and that climate right. solutions will inherently be a part of that. Right. I find that really compelling and inspiring. And it's really helpful in a country where a good portion of our people and legislators need to be very careful with the way they talk about climate change. We can like bemoan that, especially coastal elites like me can be like (laughs) big mad about that, but it's sort of (laughs) just the facts. And I don't claim to have any real credibility in, you know, agricultural parts of our culture, but other people at Yardstick do. And I find it super inspiring that we get to participate in a set of solutions that actually don't require us to all agree that climate change is anthropogenic in nature before we get to work. Yeah, that's such an interesting kind of tension. Maybe tension isn't the right word, but it is an interesting question I always come back to is, you know, do we use carbon and focusing on it because there is starting to be a market for things like voluntary or the voluntary carbon market? Do we use it as a beachhead to commercialize technologies and get folks excited about things that then ultimately do offer benefits beyond carbon? Or is there a trap in there and should we always be leading with the more holistic view. I don't know. It's not something we have to 
<laughs> I think about that every day. I don't have a good answer. That is a central identity challenge and therefore opportunity of Yardstick. I feel that every single day we do anything. I think you're a fool if you think there's a simple answer. I hugely respect folks that come down hard on either side of that. And I hope that I'm also trying to explore a world in which it's a false binary and that zero-sum thinking is a feature of a bad <laughs> worldview. I agree there's trade-offs, of course. You know, I promise you I run a company where I appreciate <laughs> limited resources. And nonetheless, I think it's incredibly important to press in to that tension because that's the real stuff right there. For sure. Yeah, as you already kind of hinted at earlier, when we manage for single variables, that tends to be where we get in trouble <laughs> in the first place. That's when stuff gets haywire, for sure. Exactly. Good stuff for us to potentially come back to. I do also want to make sure that folks get a really good appreciation for exactly it is what Yardstick is doing. What I've learned so. in podcasts is that every time we say <laughs> good stuff to come back to, we will not, in fact, come back to it. So that's fine. I'm ready. Yeah. Good stuff for us to come back to in a year in another, and, in see, and see how we've made good or not made good on some of these things that we're talking about. Sounds like a plan. But yeah, let's talk about the technology itself. What in specific is it that you all are commercializing and bringing to market? How would you paint a picture of that for folks? So we've got two things. We've got hardware and software. The hardware is in situ spectroscopy. In situ means we are in field on the farm, like we walk on the ground. We are not a satellite. Mm -hmm. And spectroscopy means fancy video camera. I have a video of our spectral probe that we can uh, post in the show notes if you're keen. Absolutely. But imagine a giant ass hand drill. <laughs> there is a lens at the tip of the drill. And so as you're drilling into the soil, you're recording a movie at the tip. Our initial product is 45 centimeters long. We have a one meter prototype as well. But however long it is, as you drill into the soil, we're recording that movie. That spectral data, which the spectrometer captures, is what tells us organic carbon content the same way a laboratory would do it, just way cheaper. So we are replacing conventional soil sampling, which requires you to physically remove soil from the earth and send it to a lab with NC2 spectroscopy. Understood. That's our hardware. And then the heart, the software is putting that point data in context. So mm -hmm. imagine a map with points. Our spectral probe produces point data, and then our software takes that point data and uses it to describe the thing that our customers actually care about, which is stocks. Mm. Stocks is tons of organic carbon, or of course, CO2E. It's a, it's a conversion factor between the two. And that basically says... Given your acreage and your depth or mass, here's how much organic carbon is in there. And that's the thing that, again, we're either trying to preserve or ideally uh, even expand. Got it. The software also collects all the other metadata that makes this work authoritative. Photography, GPS, timestamps, mm. blah, 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 blah. Because ultimately, what we're doing is providing a measurement service that other people will rely on for decision making. Our business model is as a service, at least in the U.S. for the time being. So we're not selling spectrometers. We're not selling our drills. Right. We have a full-time permanent field team who goes out and visits your farm, your ranch, your forest to do soil carbon measurement on a typically priced on a per acre basis. And who are the types of folks that are already enlisting your services to do this work? Yeah, and to continue to spell it out really clearly for folks, like what is their motivation? So we have a bunch of different kinds of customers. We are understandably probably firstly perceived as an enabling technology for offsets. 
I've already described Indigo, right? And they're also doing some scope three stuff, but whatever. Largely rightly perceived to be, at least in the soil carbon world, focused on offsets. That's good. Mm-hmm. High quality offsets, which acknowledge the sins of the past, are super important. It's also yep. not like our central identity. We are providing the measurement service that is important for lots of different people. The most obvious one, number one, is, is offsets. Companies like Indigo, companies like Truterra, those are both primarily in this like region ag, you know, practice change space. But there's mm-hmm. other kinds of offsets in soil carbon. Lithos, Ion, and Undo are three different ERW, enhanced rock weathering companies. Right. Totally different, but also soil and also carbon. There's also companies pursuing novel soil amendments that made by microbial or fungal in nature. Yep. Loam Bio and Andes are two examples of that. Again, totally different mechanism by which we want to preserve or expand soil carbon stocks. Yep. But it's soil and it's carbon, and so they're going to need measurement. Right. So that first bucket is offsets. Second bucket is doing the same work, but doing it within existing agricultural supply chains. Folks typically call this either scope three because they tend to represent scope three emissions yep. of an agricultural or food brand like an organic valley, or call it insetting right. because it's within their own supply chain. Some people draw distinctions between those two words. I'm not really sure what they are, <laughs> so I consider them interchangeable. In that case, our customer is Organic Valley. Organic Valley is trying to do the same thing. They're trying to decarbonize agricultural soils. They're just doing it within their own supply chain of, in this case, dairy. So they're saying, hey, dairies, yesterday you sold me milk. Tomorrow I'd like you to sell me milk and carbon benefits, or really like lower carbon intensity yeah. milk, yeah. you know, grams per gram, you know, tons per gallon, whatever it is. Right. Third category, kind of discreet, but interesting are land funds. These are organizations mm. that are doing, they're basically like house flippers for soil. They buy crummy mm. soils and make them better. And when you're a house flipper, you take pictures before and after. And so we're the photographer, so to speak. They may be interested to access carbon markets, but the central economic premise of their business is appreciation of the real asset of the land. A fourth is the research community. We were awarded six USDA Climate Smart Commodities Awards last fall, where the central premise of those programs is demonstrating our ability to deliver low carbon intensity commodities. Some of those Mm. projects are led by academic institutions. So for example, South Dakota State University is the, the lead on one of those six projects. They're evaluating the impact of different grazing practices across a bazillion acres of, of rangeland in sort of the West, Pacific Northwest, Central West. Got it. And the reason why they need soil carbon measurement is because they want to figure out how to do grazing better and publish a paper. They don't have quite the same clarity of commercial momentum as some of the other examples I gave. But the point is, you know, we think our measurement data is critical path for lots of different reasons. Offsets are a immediate term, commercially expedient source of demand for us. We love it. We're making it better, uh, super consistent with our values, but there's a lot of different folks out there that need soil carbon measured. Yeah. It's super interesting that you're already kind of sitting at the intersection of what is increasingly becoming a topic that at least I'm tracking of that offsetting versus insetting dynamic, you know, offsetting. Yeah. And the insetting is, I think, better attuned to the rightful criticism of like, offsets being used to justify continued emissions, right? Because the point is like, clean up your own shit, right? Like, it's your backyard. If you're Organic Valley and you've got an SBT aligned net zero goal, you do the math and 85% of your emissions are scope three, (laughs) which means you can put all the solar panels in the world on your office and like, it won't matter. What matters is the milk. Where does the milk come from? And you don't produce the milk, so you better go talk to the people who do. 
And that again yeah. is like what inspires me, especially when we get into this tension of like the moral risk of offsets, you know, carbon removal being used to distract from a core goal of actual direct decarbonization. That's a much better fit, I believe, long term. Both have a role. Yeah. Love them both. If you're my customer in offsets and you're listening to this, <laughs> I love you, value you. Um, but nonetheless, there's pretty unique characteristics of each. Well, especially if you know you are a company, as you said, with scope three emissions that are stemming from land or use, or could be from yeah. land use, or could be ameliorated in some totally. capacity. And land totally. use, it's probably you know, yeah. Why out? I mean, I can understand why some folks would want to outsource that work to the offsetting side. It's unsatisfying, exactly. And I think that also addresses a lot of valid criticisms of questions of durability in soil carbon. Mm-hmm. Is you know, like. It's the premise of emissions and offsets, insets, credits, whatever, being like for like. If you're removing stuff from biogenic pools like soil, like put it back in the same duration pools. This is where a lot of the criticism of oil and gas companies removing mm-hmm. things from fossil pools and then trying to put them back into lower durability, uh, higher risk of reversal pools like soil. I think a lot of that yeah. criticism is very well-founded. I believe there are market mechanisms that can control for those things compellingly, but nonetheless, it's a lot more inspiring when someone's emissions are agricultural in nature and they're committed to solutions which themselves are agricultural in nature. Let's walk through kind of the life cycle of your support for one of these stakeholders or a project. And you can pick your favorite of the different groups of folks that you already enumerated, but what does it look like when you start working for them? I imagine some of it is kind of establishing a baseline, but then there's obviously also on certain timescales, periodic check-ins. Let's kind of like walk through what the step-by-step process for something like that looks like. Yeah. So you're right. Everything starts with a baseline. Very few of our customers have compelling baselines from the past. Why? Because low carbon measurement is really hard. So that <laughs> is 100% of our work to date. The steps are basically you hand me field boundaries. So that's a a GIS, you know, computer file format that describes your farm, ranch, forest, whatever it is. We take a look and we say, okay, here's our understanding of the landscape. There are methodological considerations. Hey, if you're doing offsetting, are you aligned to CAR-SEP, Soil Enrichment Protocol, or Vera Mm -hmm. VM42? There's a number of different protocols out there of, of varying qualities and maturities, but we need to understand whether our customers are intending to put credits in the market that are blessed by an existing voluntary carbon market VCM uh, methodology. If so, that defines some details of our work. And then it's essentially placing sample sites and doing the work. So there's a lot of pretty complex spatial math that happens in sample plan design. There's a process Mm -hmm. called stratification, which basically means grouping soils with each other such that more likely to be similar soils are in the same strata. Sample sites are individual lat longs, right? It's just GPS numbers. That data is pushed to our field team. They get in trucks and airplanes and they go to the site. We spend, you know, a few days to a few weeks at a site. Depends on scale, depends on complexity of landscape. They're using our spectral probe on site. They're also collecting conventional data. So our spectroscopy is trained on conventional laboratory analysis. So even Mm. though our central piece of hardware is spectral in nature, We're also, I think, like literally the best conventional sampling team in the country Mm -hmm. because we have to be in order to train (laughs) our probe. And then you get results. So we have a cute dashboard. It looks like a map. It tells you how much soil carbon is there. Again, we can put like a little example in the show notes if you want. And as a customer, you have satisfied a project requirement to do a baseline. The whole point, as you point out, is to understand changes over time. 
Soil carbon changes very slowly. The measure-remeasure mm. window is a product of magnitude of expected change, right? Like intuitively, if you expect changes to be massive, then you can, quote-unquote, see that change sooner, right? Because it's changing faster. So the range of measurement periods can be broad, but call it three years, four years, potentially more, maybe a little less. It's measured on years in any case, where it is uh, technically possible to understand soil carbon stock changes within a year, like the seasonal changes, but that is rarely a specific measurement objective or requirement of many of these programs. Instead, they tend to capture seasonal variability by requiring you to measure the soil carbon stock at the same time each year. So understandably, to me, we're talking about longer term horizons here, where to really quantify with some level of assurance that there's for instance, an uptake in soil carbon, that's like a three to five year type of process as opposed to six months or a year. There's a corner case where like you really have figured out the like holy moly soil carbon dust and you're just like juicing it, in which case maybe year over year could be feasible. There are also scenarios in which you do want to understand within season variability, especially for some inorganic carbon stuff. But generally speaking, the bulk of this momentum is this regen ag premise. Measure, remeasure windows of three years uh, is, is a good sense of the overall magnitude of timescales here. Got it. Because ecologies move slowly, or at least like soil ecologies do, right? right? It's not, think how fast a tree grows. Like, it takes a long time, and soils are completely <laughs> different from trees, but you're not surprised, you know? When it may take you a few years to figure out what's going on with trees, soils can feature many of the same timescales. Interesting, yeah. And so for the folks, for example, that are thinking about this in terms of an offsetting play or generating carbon credits. So it might be five years before they're able to, between when they begin the work and then between when they actually are able to release and, and sell credits. Is that right? Kind of. So the answer to that question is a product of the methodology they're using. So let's use two examples. A methodology that allows crediting on an annual basis by way of a validated model, like Vera VM42, will allow you to sell tons annually. And that's basically an acknowledgement of the thing you just pointed out, which is like, who the hell is going to wait five years to get paid? So in that case, you're obligated to do direct measurement. I'm slightly simplifying here again, soil scientists of the world, like, please drag me. I welcome DMs on Twitter. But nonetheless, you're obligated to do a direct measurement baseline at year zero. You're obligated to do a direct measurement remeasure stock at year three. In between, you're allowed to issue credits as long as your model is validated, which is its own like 200-page PDF process, you're allowed to issue credits on an annual basis, but you got to true up with direct measurement at year three. So you have a disincentive to overcredit on a model basis. A different methodology may not allow that. And for example, VM21 historically has not allowed that crediting on a, on a model basis, and VM21 has never been used. <laughs> so there's some key sciencely compelling features which nonetheless are like operationally prohibitive. That's mm. why there is a massive opportunity to abuse models in the general sense. But directionally, mm. I think I can speak on behalf of the company to say that we are enthusiastic about well-constrained methodologies that allow this combo of direct measurement and modeling. And in and of itself, you know, as the folks commercializing a better technology, that's a crude word, but a more accurate technology, you're helping kind of drive the credibility piece forward. Exactly. It makes sense to align yourself with other folks that are interested in doing the same. Yep. And think about what good models need. They need good truth data. And that's what we provide. 
So a lot of times folks perceive yardstick as like a competitor to a regrow or a perennial or a habitare. And that kind of like makes sense if you just scan our websites, but it really doesn't make sense if you know what you're talking about in the sector, because these are completely mm. different tools for different purposes. Are those companies, if I do my job, are customers, not not right. competitors. <laughs> Technically, yeah, I guess you could be a person out there saying, I'm not going to bother with any direct measurement. Like, I'm just going to like do this model. But you would get laughed at. You would not satisfy the methodologies. Even if you found a buyer, the price you get would be super shitty. So you wouldn't have yeah. like good economics for your program. So that's not to say that like existing soil carbon methodologies and markets are like fine. But I think there is a a kind of unhelpful generalization, especially when talking about nature-based solutions as a family, that it's like, if you read about the forestry work of avoided conversion, like Red Plus stuff about, you know, that describes 20 years ago, it's probably the same stuff that's happening today. And that's categorically inaccurate. And as much as the nature-based kind of carbon management and carbon removal space has been plagued by actors who aren't necessarily doing a good job of bringing credible products to market. I think in and of it's like that should, and I, from my vantage point, am seeing that it's definitely driving a flight to quality. Exactly. Uh, and a flight to credibility. And yeah, so all of that should continue to compound and build on itself as the technology itself gets better and as methodologies get better. So hopefully we get to a better place soon. <laughs> I'm not sure should, but I would say can. Like, and, you know, I'm not going to hold you to like one random word, but like should means like it'll probably be fine. And can <laughs> means like we have the opportunity, you know, right. I think it can. And the only way we get there is if we have a group of people that are committed to like facing down that criticism, not with rebuttals, but with like openness to change. Totally. That's easy for me to say, right? Like I'm brand new to this stuff. Like I got nothing to protect, but it's central to our brand that we're like, yeah, soil carbon measurement is hard. Like, why the hell do you think I exist? And a <laughs> lot of the criticisms have been valid. We're just totally. the 0.1% of people who are like, let's work on that instead of right. understandably deciding to work on something else. But all yeah. climate solutions have an existential threat. All of them. Like, if you're trying to work in climate and you're looking for something that's like good to go, like you will be looking for a long time. And this is just the risk and the uncertainty that like, I'm willing to accept. And I honor people who want a different kind of risk or uncertainty. But I really chafe at a lot of the, again, like Twitter climate um, <laughs> bubble conversation of like, with DAC, we're fine and nature-based solutions are a waste <laughs> of time. And again, like that's yeah. hyperbolic. Like I actually don't know anyone who's saying it that categorically, but you get my point. They've all got challenges. This is just ours. And speaking in the vein of risk and uncertainty, I'm curious how you, especially perhaps in conversations with customers, how do you describe, I'm hesitant to say quantify, but yeah, how do you describe and speak to the risk and uncertainty that there still inevitably is in kind of the soil carbon quantification that you're doing? Because I'm super cognizant that the whole goal of this conversation is that the technology is getting better, but also that it's you know not perfect by any means. Yeah. How do you speak to that? Probably unsatisfying, but I'm like, yeah, that's the nature of hard problems. Like, I'm sorry, if you're working in climate, like, those are the only problems we've got. Yeah. That's, so you just got to decide what risk. I think a lot of times people want to use this, like, I'm an objective analytical evaluator. I'm going to find the thing which is data defensibly lower risk. And 
usually what they're really saying is, this is the kind of risk that I am comfortable with. And that's like a philosophy decision. That's not a science decision. And that's fine and good. Like, we're all people. Like, none of us are robots, you know? So cool. Just decide what kind of risk you've got appetite for. Frontier has decided that durability is insanely important. I respectfully disagree that it is as important as they describe it. That Mm. doesn't mean, like, I think they're idiots or bad people. (laughs) They've done amazing work, especially in CDR. Is it easy for me to describe the things that I think that they're messing up? Of course, but like I'm a slowness person. Like, what do you expect? (laughs) That's really my answer is reckon with your own preferences, your own worldview, your own relationships, acknowledge the opportunity of the thing that you feel good about, acknowledge the limitations of the thing that you feel good about, even as you acknowledge the limitations of the thing that you're not choosing. And I'm curious, kind of zooming out a little bit to... We're kind of back to the the customer side or the demand side, and this doesn't have to be exclusively in the context of carbon markets, but the headlines we see are, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, that there's a lot of investment and excitement around some of the more quote unquote durable solutions that the US government is funding or that folks like Frontier are ready to support in direct air capture or other solutions that are perhaps a little bit more technology and hardware driven. But from your vantage point, you know, what's the feel in the market for offsets from soil carbon, for instance, and how has that changed perhaps in the past year or two? Certainly, whatever boosters expected three years ago, like largely hasn't come to pass. Interesting. There was an explosion of new soil carbon project kind of conceptualization, significantly, you know, on the heels of Indigo, which is either to their credit or to their shame, depending upon how you, you know, <laughs> read that story. I, I think it's mostly the former. That certainly, you know, they made a bet and it hasn't panned out the way they wanted. But again, like nature of startups, like unsurprising. I would say that folks who are enthusiastic about nature-based solutions are scared to say so because of, again, I don't want to over-rotate on Twitter climate or climate Twitter, but like there it is. <laughs> There's a lot of reputational risk. No one's done a takedown of a DAC project from 20 years ago, right? Huh. <laughs> so like... Okay. <laughs> you know, ultimately, all of these corporations are in the business of, of reputational risk management. And one of the categories, first of all, it's a false binary, right? Engineered versus nature based, but I get your point. Nonetheless, one of those things, hey, like has a lot more front page Guardian, front page um, Bloomberg Business Week articles written about it. So are you going to stick your neck out for that? Some people have the courage to say no, but like corporations are not famous for their courage. That's why. I am enthusiastic to be running a measurement company because I I really deeply believe that we're part of the building blocks of a higher credibility sector. I want that to be earned, right? Like I don't want that to be a product of like just better marketing, but nonetheless, I'm proud to be working on a thing that'll really matter. I don't begrudge corporations who are discreet about their enthusiasm for nature-based solutions because they do face a lot of reputational risk. That's just the problem I want to solve. I also see a fascinating emergence of folks that are blending the worlds of nature-based or nature-mediated or open systems, whatever you want to call it, with engineered, higher durability, frontier-y type stuff. I've mentioned enhanced rock weathering, you know, this company Lithos, Ion, Undo, all three of them are interestingly in the middle of like land-based, right? Pretty cheap inputs. That implies some compelling scalability with 
they claim high durability, right? These are inorganic carbon compounds. The science maturity of a lot of that stuff, uh, you can poke holes in. But again, you can poke holes in the science maturity of, of all of this. So I find that to be a sort of fascinating and in retrospect, unsurprising example of folks that are trying to blend the immediate term feasibility of land-based and the durability desires of at least you know a, a very vocal but relatively small piece of the total demand that's out there. Yeah. Within nature-based, I'll say one other dynamic is increasing rigor on uh, so-called co-benefits. I think I got this line from some friends of mine that work in in soil carbon about how historically, like carbon accounting weak forestry work has been sold on the charismatic on its charismatic features. Right, it's pictures of monkeys, or right now it's <laughs> pictures of like farmers. That's, I mean, DAC stuff is cool, but like it's a lot more human, right? And I think there's a great push to basically say, hey, you know, afforestation stuff, for example, may be like really compelling and novel. It's not enough to just like wave your hands and say co benefits. <laughs> yeah. Like you need to have rigor there as well. And so a, a sector movement, which you'll hear more about shortly, of like better principles for environmental credits across all these different claims of carbon and non-carbon claims, I think is something I see massively happening within high-quality nature-based project developers and is a very, very good indicator of the seriousness with which many project developers are treating these criticisms and the inventiveness and science-led nature of wanting to produce better solutions that respond to it. And alongside co-benefits, it's also, I'm glad that I'm starting to see more conversation around community benefit too, yeah. because, you know, as we build a carbon removal industry in the US, it's one thing to build DAC hubs in Cancer Alley in Louisiana, which don't get me wrong, still a lot better than legacy oil and gas infrastructure. Or maybe it's not. I mean, here's the thing. Like, I know we're like in the climate sector, but like what people got to like stare down is like, maybe it's not. And I don't know enough about DAC and DAC hubs to actually have an opinion about that, but Things that say climate should not be given a pass. We have to demonstrate with right. evidence that it's actually better than the alternative. And we can also agree that's a low bar. Yeah. Suffice it to say that, you know, if we're going to build a substantial carbon removal industry in the US and in the world, some of that's going to be a lot of net new infrastructure development. Some of it might be working with land more, ideally, as you said. Yeah. With whom and for whom. Totally. But exactly. Yep. It's like who yep. who's working on it, who benefits economically, all of the stuff beyond the carbon. Especially when so many of them are tech companies that are largely led by white men. And <laughs> there's a lot of whiteness in land-based stuff. I mean, we work primarily in agriculture, the whole thing of which is predicated on mass land theft. Like agriculture can never get away from that. Forestry too, right? We can never get away from that. If companies don't treat that on par with the carbon, quote unquote, primary benefits, right? Like, I think there's a, a great conversation, especially within nature-based or nature-mediated land-based stuff that says, what if the primary benefits are community and the co-benefit is carbon? Yeah. I think that's a very provocative and, and valuable conversation, which is only provocative to me because I'm like deep in the carbon tunnel vision world, right? Like, who yeah. could argue with the fact that like human benefit is not the primary goal of these efforts. Yeah. That's where I think a lot of that tension is really, really rich. Project developers and enabling technologies like Yardstick ignore it at their peril. And I feel like I have a massive amount to learn from organizations who are uh, rightly telling that story 
to folks who are likely to be over-optimizing, as you point out, for one criteria, like me. I think we uh, certainly got to one of the hearts of the matter. I love it. I'd be remiss if I didn't offer the last few minutes to talk a tiny bit more about Yardstick and what you all have coming in the next six months, year, two. I'd be curious, just, you know, what's front of mind? What's the focus? I'm sure that improving the technology and securing more customers and working well with them is a big part of it, but I won't put the cart before the horse. What's coming down the pipe? Yes, uh, it is. Uh, in the opposite order, uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> there's always more tech to do. Nonetheless, the reason why we've done this most recent round is because we feel very strongly that uh, many of the core technologies are, are looking pretty solid. So Excellent. commercial deployment is really our number one priority. It's not zero sum, blah, blah, blah. There's lots of cool stuff on the R&D roadmap, especially in inorganic carbon, for example. I mentioned mm. a one meter probe, vehicle mounting stuff, going international. Those are all like really cool, highly technical worthy efforts. And nonetheless, yeah, like really being able to show that there's demand for our services is going to be essential to us continuing to exist as a company. Makes perfect sense. And I'm also always curious to ask, I'm sure there's a lot of different ways, but you know, how do you measure success on a longer term kind of time horizon? Like five years from now, if you had to point to a couple different metrics, and again, metrics sometimes get us away from the heart of the matter that we discussed earlier around community benefits. But yeah, you know, what are some things you'd be excited to accomplish metrics wise by say 2030? Yeah, probably the only thing worse than one metric is zero. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I'm not sure I believe that now that I say it out loud. But in any case, honestly, like acres is mm -hmm. the thing I get most excited about. It's our customers who are like doing things with those acres and many of them will fail, right? The whole reason we think measurement is so essential is because right now the causal relationship between what you are doing to soil and the outcomes you expect are is, is pretty poorly understood. So our key impact is providing that insight. Mm -hmm. If you can help people understand what actually works, there will, I'm highly confident, be mechanisms to put the pedal to the metal for stuff that really works. But right now I'm focused on the more fundamental question of, of what works. And the best way we get from here to there is measuring a whole ton of acres with a whole ton of variety of, of activities. I think I'll be dissatisfied if we do a massive number of acres on a very narrow set interventions. But nonetheless, if I had to pick something, acres and closely tied to acres is dollars <laughs> of revenue. <laughs> I think that's the thing that's most top of mind for me. Of course, you can take that to the next level of like CO2E, but that just like requires a whole bunch more steps, which we don't directly control. And I really don't like the premise of a company that's led by metrics, which aren't really directly under its control. And yeah, I come back to this point often, but I fundamentally get excited about the growth of solid, strong, valuable data. There's so much enthusiasm, to put it lightly, about things like AI and computation right now. But all of that stuff is pretty limited if you're not also fundamentally unlocking new yep. and better data. Yep. So totally. Yeah. And our number one core value is climate impact above all else. And so you just, you play the five wise game of like, how do you get from here to there? And yeah, data generation in service of insights that drive behavior change. That's what gets me excited about. Beautiful. To close on a call to action, you know, for folks listening in that are interested in the work that you're doing, potentially want to work with you, work for you, what's the right place for them to uh, either get in touch or just keep tabs on the good work that y'all are doing? Useyardstick.com. Boom. Easy enough. All right, Chris, this has been a rip-roaring 50 minutes. I certainly learned a lot, and as always, have more to think about, more questions to ponder than answers, perhaps. 
but that's the nature of the climate work that we're doing. Yes, it is. Thanks so much for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for making time. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon. Thank you.